Y'all could stand for the word of God. Today we're going to be reading in John 18, 33 through 38, on page 528 of the Blue Bibles on the back of the chairs. And if you don't have your own Bible and you would like to have one, please take one of these home. John 18, 33 through 38. Hear the word of the Lord. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or does others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world... My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Terry. Let's pray. Jesus, your word is truth. We affirm that. We believe it. We stand on that. Lord, there's not a single thing I could say to anyone here that matters unless I speak from your word, God. And then your word is life. Your word is truth. Your word is fruitful and productive. So we thank you for that. Lord, we pray as we consider your word that our hearts and our minds, our our senses, our emotions would all be focused on the truth that is found in Jesus. Pray that we would not be distracted by the world we live in, that we wouldn't be bored because of other concerns and temptations that we find more appealing in our fallenness. But Jesus would be lifted high, that he'd be glorified, and he would be enough to satisfy every longing of our hearts today. So, Lord, I thank you for the moment that we get to hear your word. And, God, I ask that you would prepare me through a supernatural work of your spirit to be able to uh, to speak your words, God, and speak them in a way that bestows honor on you, Lord, that, that uh, God, I'm found faithful in the communication of your word. God, I can't even do that without your help. And so I just ask for you. I rely on you. I depend on you before this people that belongs to you. And I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So we, uh, several weeks ago, as most of you know that have been here, we've been in a series in the book of Mark. And we took a break from that series to do a, a, a smaller series preparing for Easter where we were looking at kind of the supporting cast of characters that you find in the the four Gospels depictions of the Holy Week from Palm Sunday to um, Resurrection Sunday or Easter. And we, this, the, uh, most of you probably came here expecting a 
Palm Sunday message when you when you came here uh, or when I when I came to church as a kid on Palm Sunday they always give the little kids palm branches I don't know if we did that this morning in the back but and so it was a big deal Palm Sunday is a big deal and we think it's a big deal that Jesus came into Jerusalem but I'm I'm sticking to the script today I'm going to stay with the the, the uh, characters supporting cast of uh, Jesus's final week before his crucifixion and resurrection. Um, and so, so far, we've looked at Judas, uh, obviously the one most of us know who betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Jews. Last week, we looked at Barabbas, the criminal. Uh, the people demanded that Barabbas be freed and that, uh, that Christ take his place, though Christ had been found innocent. Um, and yet there are a few characters that we could consider in this whole drama of Jesus's final week that are more perplexing than the character of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor who uh, presided over Jesus's trial and who ordered his death by execution on the cross. Now, uh, Jesus, of course, was not a Roman. He was a Jew. And in that time period, in the first century, um, the, the Romans ruled over all the known world. So basically, uh, the, the Jews lived in an occupied country under a foreign power. That power was Rome. And, and, Pontius Pilate was the Roman that was tasked with with oversight and governance of the whole area of Judea. Now, I, I said that he was perplexing, and he's perplexing for this primary reason. All four Gospels, every single one, no exceptions, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all portray him as reluctant to condemn Jesus to death. If you read those those four accounts, Pilate consistently attempts to defend Jesus' innocence to the crowd that has brought him before uh, Pilate for judgment. Um, he, you know, they're a bloodthirsty mob, and, and they're swept into this frenzy by the chief priest. But the more Pilate tries to get them to, to rethink the crucifixion of Jesus, the more they respond to his intervention with shouts of, Crucify him! Crucify him! They are intent on seeing uh, Jesus died. Now, for this very reason, when I was a child and I would, you know, put on my Sunday best and come to Palm Sunday and, and Easter Sunday and I'd hear the story of Pilate, he always seemed to me like one of the good guys of the story. He seemed like kind of an innocent victim of his times. He was a man who really wanted to do the right thing, but he was shut down by the pressure of the crowd, as we see that happen with politicians all the time. And, and in thinking that he was one of the good guys, in historic Christianity, I certainly was not alone. The Ethiopian and Coptic churches of, of you know, North Africa and the Middle East have both taught that, that Pilate's reluctance to, to uh, condemn Jesus must infer that he at some point became a Christian. In fact, both churches go so far as to venerate Pilate as both a martyr and a saint. My question to you is, is this probable? Well, unfortunately, if you're a student of history, history exposes Pilate not as a man who is reasonable or compassionate, but it actually kind of paints a picture of him as a tyrant 
who is way too quick to provoke and murder the Jews that he was tasked with governing. Let me give you a quick example. The Jewish uh, historian Josephus tells us how previous Roman governors, Pilate was the fifth Roman governor since, since Rome took over Judea, and, and the previous Roman governors were very cautious not to bring images of Caesar into the city. Uh, they didn't want to offend the zealous Jews who lived there. See, the Romans worshipped Caesar as God or as a God. And loyal to him, loyalty to him and to his government was affirmed by a declaration, if you were a Roman citizen, that Caesar is Lord. You, you wonder why it's such a big deal that Christians say Jesus is Lord because it was in direct opposition to this idea that Caesar is Lord. And so therefore, to Jews, these imperial images of Caesar being paraded all over the holy city represented a clear violation of the second commandment. You shall make no graven images. However, Pilate demonstrated absolutely no such concern for Jewish sensitivities. In fact, we're told that that uh, when he came to power, he filled the city with images of, C- uh, of Caesar by night in order to, to show everybody who was boss, in order to uh, provoke the Jews into a bloody confrontation, which would have resulted in tremendous loss of life. But it was only when Caesar saw, or I'm sorry, when Pilate saw how quickly the Jews would bear their necks to the sword that he relented. He, he, he saw that when they were threatened, that, that, uh, they, uh, that they were ready to die, and so he backed off. But it's not all about that we know about Pilate. Have you ever considered Luke's cryptic words and wondered what they meant in Luke chapter 13, verse 1? This is what it says. It, 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 uh, Luke is setting up a scene where Jesus is going to talk to some people that have gathered around him. And it says this, There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. That sounds really creepy, doesn't it? Well, probably this is the instance that it is referring to because it's affirmed in history in several places. But Luke doesn't provide us with the specifics of what it means specifically. So what we have to do is we look at another source like Josephus to learn what this means. Josephus tells us of a time when Pilate, probably in conspiracy with the corrupt chief priests of the Jews, confiscated money that had been donated by the Jews to the work of the temple for the priesthood and the upkeep and all that stuff. They, he, they confiscated that money in order to build a new Roman aqueduct into the city. And the Jews, because they had given that money sacrificially for the work of the temple, did not appreciate this. So what they did is they assembled in protest. They were going to let Pilate know, this foreign you know, uh, interloper, they were going to let him know how they felt about that. So it was a really ugly scene. Pilate, when he would make a public appearance, they would throw rocks and filth at him and shout all kinds of, of horrible epithets at him and, and insult him publicly. Publicly. Well, Pilate was not going to stand for that at all. Remember, he's in charge. He's the boss. So little did this crowd know that Pilate had all throughout the crowd stationed soldiers in disguise. They just dressed like the Jewish populace and they were in the crowd. And so at Pilate's 
predetermined signal, the, the soldiers began attacking the protesters with daggers and clubs, and many, many died that day, and many others were wounded. Now, why do I tell you this? Because you can perhaps see, when you compare what the Scriptures say, the Gospels, to what history tells us about this man, you can see that Pilate is not easy to figure out. See, for Pilate, killing just one more Jew, as he assumed Jesus was, shouldn't have troubled his conscience at all. He should have just uh, condemned him to death and been done with it. So why then... Does he hesitate like he does on the day of Christ's trial? And that's our question today. That's what we want to think about. That's what we want to consider. So if we take all four Gospels and we compile everything the Gospel writers tell us about Pilate's involvement in Jesus' trial, we get a picture of what might have fueled Pilate's reluctance to dispose of Jesus. So when Pilate, you gotta understand the charges against Jesus. When Jesus first, uh, initially stood trial, it was before the Jewish authorities, not the Roman authorities, and they almost immediately found him guilty of blasphemy, which was punishable by death under Jewish law. The blasphemy was for, for claiming to be God, um, and, and so they immediately found him guilty. And however, because Rome occupied the Holy Land, the Jews had no authority to put anyone to death. So before, so, before Pilate, when they dragged him to Pilate, they didn't accuse him of blasphemy. They knew Pilate wouldn't care at all about a Jewish blasphemy charge. But uh, but he also couldn't ignore a threat to Caesar's power or, or Caesar's life. And so they, th- they accused him of sedition, of claiming that he was a king. And in, in Rome, under Roman rule, there is no king but Caesar. And yet this man, the Jews come claiming, is claiming to be a king. So so follow me here. Here is Jesus convicted by his own people of blasphemy in their understanding for speaking against the law and speaking against the temple, which in, which in fact he wasn't doing. He was saying that he was fulfilling the law and, and he was the perfect temple. And instead of mounting a defense when he, when those accusations are brought against him, what does Jesus do? Does he, does he mount a defense? Does he hire an attorney? Does he explain the theological weight behind his words and behind his actions? No! He does none of that. The Bible tells us he makes absolutely no answer, none whatsoever, complete silence before those who are accusing him. So when he's brought before Pilate, the stakes are raised. See, Pilate actually does have authority to sentence him to death. And the charge against Jesus before the Romans is sedition. It's, it's, it's not just sedition, it's sedition against the government that was in charge at that time of the entire world. And yet, Jesus' response to the accusation of Sedition and insurrection is the same as his response to blasphemy. Absolute silence. And both Matthew and Mark tells us that observing this response amazes Pilate. Now why is that? Because Pilate had probably at this point in his career sent hundreds of men to the cross. Now, of those hundreds of men that he had sent to the cross, I'm going to imagine 
that there was one of two responses when someone was to condemn to die in that horrible, barbaric, inhumane way. The first one was probably a lot of whimpering, a lot of crying. The men who were tough and strong that just became, they just melted at such a sentence of such a horrific death. And if they were able to avoid the whimpering and the crying, perhaps they cursed and were defiant, shaking their fist in the face of imperial power. But Jesus did neither. Completely silent. Isaiah, 600 years before this moment in time, had prophesied that this would happen. He tells us in Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now what is this communicating to Pilate, this powerful man? It's communicating to Pilate that he is not dealing with anyone like he had ever dealt with before. Jesus' silence and any lack of any attempt to save his own neck was so unusual that for Pilate it was actually kind of disconcerting. What is going on here? What is happening? See, by his silence, Jesus was communicating that he, and not Pilate, was completely in control. He was, Jesus was not at the mercy of the things that were even happening to him unjustly. Second, that might tell us a little bit about Pilate's response is that Matthew tells us, we actually read this last week and I skipped over it knowing I'd get to it this week. Matthew says that Pilate's wife, during the trial, sent word to Pilate during the trial not to have anything to do with Jesus because she had, quote, suffered much because of him in a dream. Now, in the Roman mind, dreams were omens of a foreboding future event. If they had a dream, they took it very seriously, especially if the dream seemed to point to some future event. Now, I want to be real clear. We don't believe dreams work like that here. Uh, this belief was rooted in paganism. But how many of you believe that God is so big that he could apparently give a woman a dream to reinforce to her mind and to that of her husband the innocence of Jesus? He spoke to her in her language to show her that Christ was innocent. And this, in combination with the silence that Christ showed before his accusers, would have absolutely gotten Pilate's attention. Why would the gods, plural and lowercase in his mind, this is Pilate's thinking, why would the gods be warning him about this working class Jew with obvious delusions of grandeur? who had gotten himself in trouble for claiming to this rabble that he was their king. Jesus' appearance, when Pilate looked at him, I mean, he's standing right there. He's already been through the worst night you could imagine. Jesus' appearance gave no evidence that there was anything special about him at all. He was wearing common clothes. He surrounded himself with common people. See, word of this guy had gotten out. And the things that he was reported as doing were certainly uncommon. 
His demeanor before those who would judge him was absolutely uncommon. And when he spoke to Pilate, his words were absolutely, completely, totally uncommon. And Pilate, I believe, was troubled by a persistent thought. Maybe he didn't understand it fully, but there was this thing in the back of his mind. What what if there was something to all these claims of kingship that he was accused by the Jews of? What if there's something more than just what meets the eye? See, all four Gospels tell us that it was this point, this this idea of Christ claiming to be a king that was the one issue that Pilate honed in on more than any other in Jesus' interrogation. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all point to the same thing. All four Gospels. Are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? And so John, in the text we read this morning, Terry read to us, he pulls back the veil on the private conversation that Jesus had with Pilate in his chambers. And so in the silence of Pilate's headquarters, away from the crowds that are screaming, crucify him, crucify him, Pilate asked Jesus point blank in John 18.33, Are you the king of the Jews? Now listen, when you get pulled over by the cops, uh, if you get a letter from the IRS, this is the way it works. The person with the authority asks the questions and you answer them. Is that pretty fair assessment of how life works? Unless you want to wind up, you know, uh, out of your car and in a jail cell, you do what, you know, you, you answer the questions, you do what you're asked. But what I want you to see is that Jesus does not answer Pilate's question directly. Instead, what he does is he asks Pilate a question of his own. Now, who asks the questions? The one under authority or the one in authority? This is the question, John eighteen thirty four. Do Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Now, what is that? What is Jesus asking there? This is really important. See, Pilate is offended by Jesus' question. He retorts, am I a Jew? It's your own people that handed you over. What exactly are you guilty of, Jesus? See, the Jewish scriptures had long prophesied that the rightful heir to David's throne would appear to reign in righteousness and reign in justice. And Pilate sees all of this king stuff at first as just a regional religious issue. He sent him to Herod. Let the Jews figure it out. But in doing that and seeing it as just a simplified religious issue, he misses Jesus' point entirely, the the point of Jesus' question. See, Jesus' point is not to ask him whether he believed what the Jews were saying. He was saying, Pilate, what do you believe about me yourself? What do you believe, Pilate? Do you guys remember in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus is with his disciples and he says, hey guys, we've been uh, mingling with all these crowds. Who do they say I am? Oh, Jesus, some of them are saying you're John the Baptist, some of them say you're Moses, some of them say you're Elijah or one of the prophets. And then he looks at him, he turns the question to them, he says, 
But who do you say I am? Listen, it does not matter at all. If, even if this is your home church, it doesn't matter to you at all what you think I think about Jesus. The issue is, who do you say that he is? So when you hear that Jesus is the king, and you say, I believe that, do you believe it because I told you? Or do you believe it yourself? See, Jesus doesn't here deny that he's the king of the Jews, but he's asking Pilate, not a Jew, but a Gentile. That's really important. If he acknowledges Jesus as his king, Jesus now makes it plain. Pilate, I am so much more than just the king of the Jews. I am the king of the whole world. And Pilate, or Jesus invites Pilate, who is his earthly judge, to in turn submit to his lordship as one who is infinitely higher than Caesar, one whose glory will not fade away even with his death, it will only be revealed and magnified. And Jesus points out, he's so much more than even the king of the Jews or even the king of the Romans. He says, next, my kingdom is not of this world. He's saying, It's saying, don't try to put a boundary, a border around my authority. My authority transcends all of creation, Pilate. It's not of this world. My kingdom is transcendent. It's not defined by geographic or political borders. My kingdom is heavenly. It is spiritual. It is eternal in nature. And guess what, uh, agent of Caesar? Nothing can threaten my kingdom. See, Pilate lives in a world of political maneuvering where people say and do what they need to say and do to get ahead and to secure for themselves a position of power. But all such positions are by nature temporary. Nobody lasts. How many prophets did you hear? Trump's going to get reelected. Guess what? It didn't happen. All political power. Please hear me. It's not a political statement of who I like and who I don't like. I'm just telling you, no matter who gets elected, all political power, all earthly power is temporary. All of it is. Power can be lost when one loses the favor of his superiors, when he isn't reelected, or in Pilate's world, when someone's assassinated. But see, Christ points out that his kingdom operates on an entirely different set of values, an entirely different set of mechanics. When you're maintaining an earthly kingdom, you'd better have a military mighty enough to protect your interests. But not so in Christ's kingdom. Look at what he says next. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, Pilate, my servants would have been fighting. Do you see them fighting anywhere? No, I'm standing here all alone before you. He said they would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. What is he saying? He's saying, Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world, so my defense is not from this world. My vindication will not come from this world. This is something you know nothing about. With all of your connections to Caesar, you know nothing about this, Pilate. It's different. It's otherworldly. Because Christ 
is sovereign God, meaning that He is vested with all authority and given the power to exercise that authority. He has no need, listen carefully, Jesus has no need of anyone to fight His battles for Him. In fact... Fighting, violence, aggression is exactly what distinguishes earthly kingdoms from the heavenly one over which Jesus is king. And this is a really, really, really important reminder for us today. Believers, don't misunderstand me, believers should be militant in regard to the truth of the gospel. And we should never surrender the truth that God has given us to the wind, the contrary winds of popular culture. But secondary doctrinal positions, political platforms, personal tastes are rarely, if ever, the hills that we should choose to die on. Amen? That was so weak. Y'all are still mad because I said that about Trump, aren't you? See, I realize that the distinction between gospel truth and some of our doctrinal positions or even some of our political platforms or even some of our personal tastes, sometimes the the distinction between those things are hard to discern. But see, God loves you so much, people. He loves you so much that He has graciously given us all reliable tools to know when to stand firm and when to stand down. What do we have? We have the Bible. Aren't you grateful for the Bible? Really? Aren't you grateful for the Bible? See, it's, it's, to, to answer those questions about when to stand firm and when to stand down, it's, it's, it's for such reasons that you can't afford, listen to me, Christian, you cannot afford to be ignorant of what this book says and what it means. You can't afford that. Your Christianity is flaky at best if you ignore this book. Don't tell me you're a Christian if you have no time for this book. I'm not talking about becoming saved by religious duties. I'm telling you about when you are a a lover of God, you're going to be a lover of His truth. We'll talk more about that in a second. Jesus told... The religious Sadducees of his day, he said that, that, that he pointed out their error and he said, you're in error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. And let me explain to you something. You will never know the power of God if you don't know the scriptures. Do you hear me? The scriptures always are the primary thing. Uh, you can tell me signs and wonders all day long. I don't care if you don't know the scriptures. Because this, the gospel, the Bible says, Romans 1.16, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. This is where the power of God resides. And Christians, or people who claim to be Christians, are absolutely foolish when they claim, or when they act apart from Scripture. But it's not just the Scripture. See, we have the wisdom of the church for, for millennia. There are literally no battles the church is facing today that it hasn't fought in ages past. Isn't that a great comfort? From the days of the apostles to the Puritans to the faithful elders who are serving today, God has always equipped people in His church to understand how the Bible applies and to help others see it. It's a great thing. 
And why should we look at... This is the bottom line about this thing about God's people fighting. Why are we so compelled to look at everything like a war to be waged at all? You ever ask yourself that? Yes, we fight against principalities and powers and lies and deceit. But we should remember Jesus' example that he told us that we should be wise as serpents and innocent or harmless as doves. Has anybody ever freaked out because you saw a dove in your driveway? Now, if I said, has anybody freaked out because you saw a snake in your driveway, that may be a little different story. But no one's scared of a dove. And that is the the public persona that we should have is to be people who are gentle and peaceable, not dumb, wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Is this thing on, by the way? Jesus' description of his kingdom gets Pilate's attention. And in his mind, all this talk about kingdom amounts to a confession. And he looks at Jesus and he says, so you are a king. And Christ responds like this. He says, you say that I'm a king. Now, you, you can read past that as an English reader and just read right past that. In Matthew, Jesus says, you have said so. And, and this is the first century equivalent to Jesus saying, right, you've got it. You said it. Or as I would say, bingo. You nailed it, Pilate. I am a king. And Jesus goes on to say this powerful, powerful thing. He says, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Listen to this very carefully. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus right here tells Pilate the essence of his kingdom. See, the essence of Christ's kingdom is not power or intrigue. It's not political favor. The essence of Christ's kingdom is truth. Jesus says the very reason he was born, the very reason he lived a perfect life, so that he might be a beacon of truth in a world that is absolutely filled to the brim with lies and deceit. See, in sin, in our fallenness, every single one of us is pursuing a life that is imaginary through our sinful desires. You know why so many men struggle with pornography? Because they're living an imaginary life. It's a fake life. You know, you know why so many women uh, get involved in, in, in just buying more things to, to try to fill a void? Because it's an imaginary life. We're all pursuing this life that's imaginary, fueling our sinful desires. But Jesus came to both show us and to offer us a life that is that is true. And because it's true, it's eternal, it's abundant, and it's glorious. That's the difference of Christianity. That's the difference of faith in Christ, that it takes your life from being imaginary to a life that's genuine. A life that's deceitful to a life that's true. I say Jesus is a beacon because of how he draws people. I love what he said to Pilate. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He didn't say, he didn't put a religious burden on your back and say, everyone who's of the truth should listen to my voice. No! 
What he's talking about is a spiritual calling, a divine magnetism, if you will. Those who belong to the truth always turn an attentive ear to Jesus. And this is why it's foolish to think that you can portray heaven sweet enough to attract sinners to Jesus or that you can portray hell as hot enough to keep them away from sin. Only a God-breathed love of the truth will cause someone to look to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And the Bible calls this the new birth. Theologians call it regeneration. And you cannot be saved without this new birth. See, sinners are like old wineskins Jesus talks about that would be destroyed by trying to receive the new life of God without God first changing them from hearers or from haters rather of the truth that exposes them to lovers of the truth that that reconciles them to God and makes them holy. That's the transformation God has to make so that we can be saved. It's impossible, absolutely impossible to be saved by moral reformation, by cleaning up your act, by some intellectual decision that you make or submission to some religious rite or ceremony. You must be made new. Pilate's follow-up question proved that he was not ready to call Jesus king of his own accord. He showed that he wasn't of the truth when he looked at Jesus and he asked him, everyone who is of the truth hears your voice. Hey, Jesus, what is truth? See, Pilate made the same mistake many in our day make. He thought the truth was something with many shades of gray. He, something that was hashed out by long-winded philosophers. But see, had Pilate been of the truth, he would have recognized that the truth personified was standing right in front of him. John 14, 6, Jesus tells his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, many people are in search of truth because they believe that truth is weak and variable and relative. But everything that we're all looking for, every one of us without exception, everything we're all looking for is found only in Jesus. Pilate had power. Pilate had wealth. Pilate had education. And with all these things in his back pocket, what use did Pilate have for something as nebulous as truth? As much as, he, you know how much need he had? As much need as you and I do. That's what we need. We need the truth. Even if we're not wise enough to realize it, we need the truth. See, what truth does, truth gives firmness to life's instability. Truth acknowledged and embraced is devastating to doubts. It's devastating to fears that plague our mind. But redefining truth, like we like to do in our culture, and and, and turning into some kind of personal truth isn't truth at all, but it's just thinly veiled lies. And lies are always destructive in every case. And they wreak havoc on every fiber of our lives. So two things you should never forget 
Taking notes, write these down. First thing you should never forget is all truth is God's truth. Every bit of it. Whether it's the truth of science or mathematics or the truth of theology or the truth of love, all truth is God's truth. God is the exclusive proprietor of truth. Second thing you should remember because of this, you cannot arrive at truth if you remove God from the equation. You cannot know the truth of the basics of creation. You can't know the truth about human sexuality. You can't know the truth of religion. You can't know the truth of anything else without God in the mix. And the most important thing to remember is what Pilate missed. That Jesus Christ is the universal epicenter of all truth. 1 Corinthians one twenty four says this, But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You want to know Jesus, God's truth? Look at Jesus. So think about the advantage that Pilate had over you and I. He had the opportunity to have a face-to-face conversation with the Son of God, the Son of Man. He was able to question him and hear the confirmation from Christ's own lips that he was a king. But when it came for him to acknowledge who he really was, he faltered. When Pilate found the courage to ask an honest question, Jesus, what is truth? He fell short by not waiting for the one who was the truth to give him the answer. So his questions remained, and his life just kept spiraling downward. A short time after the resurrection, Pilate would return to Rome in shame to give account before Caesar Tiberius for another slaughter, this time of Samaritan worshippers. He disappears from history after that point. We know nothing what happened to him after that point. Pilate had everything that people still spend their lives trying to acquire. But what he didn't have was peace. He didn't have salvation. And he didn't have the solid ground of truth. His story in the Bible ends so sadly. Mark 15, 15 says this. So Pilate, wishing... To satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The pressure of the Jews to do away with Jesus by the cross and the pressure of his Roman overlords to keep the peace in Judea proved to be too much for Pilate. And he satisfied the crowd instead of pleasing God. May we never be guilty of missing the Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Man of Truth, who is revealed right before our eyes. May we never fear the crowd so much that we willingly turn our back on the One who is the King, not just of the Jews, not just of the Romans, but the King of everything, the Lord of all. How much confirmation do you need this morning, this Palm Sunday? How much confirmation do you need to prove that Jesus really is who he says he is. You have the scriptures. Jesus is the king. The question is, do you believe it? Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, As you search this room, I pray that you would find many 
who would acknowledge all the, the foolish imaginary lives that we live, all the vain and empty pursuits that we have, and that we would say to your son Jesus, Jesus, you are the king, and you are the king of truth. And as the king of truth, we ask that you would deliver us from lies and let us live, God, in the light of your truth. God, we, as sinners, we've hated the truth. We've hated it the way it, it exposes us and shows us for what we really are. But we're asking that you would change us, Lord, and help us to love the truth as it reconciles us to God and makes us holy. So, Lord, we just look to you. Our hearts are turned to you, and the Bible promises that those who look to you are radiant, and their faces are never covered with shame. So, Lord, do your work in us. Help us to see you. Help us to embrace you. Help us to hear your question. When you ask, did other people tell you I was the king, or do you believe it yourself. Lord, help us to say, I believe. Help my unbelief. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to
position. I just want to read this benediction over you. The Bible says in Colossians 2.2, may your hearts be encouraged, being knit together in love, to, te- to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed. Hey, don't forget to sign up for the men's breakfast and for the new members class as you head out.